Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Let's Run, the Western Mass Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Gaudet. This podcast is made possible thanks to the resources at East Hampton Media. I hear runners talk quite a bit about fueling strategies during a long run. Which gel is preferred or perhaps favorite energy drink mixes? But I don't hear much discussion on the overall fueling strategy throughout training, which is particularly important if you're training for a half marathon, marathon, or ultra. Today's podcast guest, Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, is a professional sports dietitian who is a highly qualified expert on fueling strategies for athletes and is the owner and founder of Rise Up Nutrition, where she provides nutrition coaching to athletes. By the way, Lindsay is the daughter of Kevin Fowl, a local runner from Feeding Hills, who I had on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Lindsay was a Division I track and field athlete at UMass Amherst and is in the Agawam High Sports Hall of Fame. So Lindsay can relate to the issues that runners face. Many athletes alter their diets to prioritize weight loss, and they deprive themselves of certain food items. Lindsay uses the term diet culture, which actually moves people away from healthy eating. However, athletic performance may suffer due to a restrictive diet, and athletes are at risk of a condition called red S or relative energy deficiency in sport. Red S can result in decreased bone density and broken bones. Lindsay has worked with many athletes who have suffered from red S. Instead of focusing on dieting, Lindsay focuses on fueling, and not just during a race. Lindsay works with both professional and recreational athletes on fueling strategies throughout their training. In the podcast, Lindsay shares some of her recommendations on fueling. Always eat before and after a long run. Carb load not just the night before, but at least three days before a big race. Maintain a balance of carbs, protein, and color on your plate. Alternate water and Gatorade during a run. Maintain a fueling schedule. You can go to Lindsay's website, riseupnutritionrun.com, to learn more and download her marathon and half marathon race day fueling guide. I downloaded it, and I recommend it to my podcast listeners. But before we get into the fueling recommendations, I talk with Lindsay about her work leading up to her starting Rise Up Nutrition. Lindsay worked as a registered dietitian at the University of Georgia and at Florida State University, as well as for the U.S. Air Force and for our military troops. Lindsay also has a podcast in which she talks with athletes about diet and nutrition, as well as other related topics. A particularly interesting podcast that I discovered was her conversation with physiotherapist Brody Sharp about injuries and injury prevention. I'll provide links to a lot of this good stuff in the podcast notes. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, and stay tuned afterwards for a rundown of local running events. I would now like to welcome Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez to the podcast. Lindsay is a professional sports dietitian for NCAA professional and recreational athletes. Lindsay is the owner and founder of Rise Up Nutrition, where she provides coaching to athletes, and she also has her own podcast. Lindsay is the daughter of Kevin Fowle, who was a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago. Lindsay, welcome to the Let's Run podcast. 
Thank you, Tim. I'm really excited. Of course, I loved listening to my dad's episode. And so it was nice uh, when he gave me a little shout out in there and then you and I connected too. I'm excited. Yeah. Your dad even told me that somebody who heard the podcast signed up for his running coaching service. So he owes me a beer now. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um, I know you're busy with Rise Up Nutrition and, and your own podcast. So we'll get right to it. I'd like to talk about your coaching service as well as a little bit about your work as a dietitian and, and also talk about some general diet and nutrition advice for recreational runners. Great. So on your podcast, you state that your goal is to help women become fierce, fit, and fueled female athletes. I like that slogan. Thanks. Me too. So could you just describe what kind of coaching services that Rise Up Nutrition provides? Sure. As a dietitian and a sports dietitian, there's, there's many things I'm capable of doing when it comes to nutrition. But when I started my own business, I did focus specifically on female athletes. I do have a bit of a, a niche of working with more competitive, maybe collegiate athletes, but the recreational athletes absolutely involved in there too. And what I found in my journey myself as a female athlete, as well as being a sports dietitian is that so many girls and women struggle with underfueling. They struggle with body image concerns that affect their performance. And they really struggle to eat for performance instead of to eat based on kind of diet culture and diet trends that we are surrounded by. And so the mission of Rise Up Nutrition is to help female athletes overcome disordered eating and finally use food as fuel to perform their best, really rebuilding a relationship with food that helps them be a stronger, fitter, faster female athlete. And that's why I say fierce fit and fueled. It's fierce in your mindset. That's, you know, your relationship with food and body it's fit, meaning your actual internal health, you know, you are fit and healthy and ready to go. And then you are fueled to perform at that next level as an athlete and reach your next PR, reach that next stage that you're shooting for. Great. So you mentioned eating disorders and to address that you've developed the female athlete system of transformation or fast. Could you talk about fast a little bit? Yeah. So that is my unique 12 week nutrition coaching program that helps female athletes overcome disordered eating. And that term can mean a lot of different things. We have that term eating disorder, which is a clinical diagnosis, but a lot of people fall in this category of just not fueling properly and having some disordered thoughts, actions, behaviors around food and body without any sort of clinical diagnosis. And that's really what this program is intended to uh, help female athletes with as well. And so it's 12 weeks of nutrition coaching with myself. And I actually have another sports dietitian on my team as well. We coach our clients. We have a, a specific process, I guess, that embodies everything I just talked about, about becoming fierce, fit and fueled. And it is definitely individualized work. Nutrition should be individualized. The other thing, Tim, the reason I call it the fast track, the acronym there, you know, I'm a runner, so I like being fast, but also because people struggle with nutrition for a long time, for years and years and years. And people who resonate with that term disordered eating, some of them feel like it's something they have to live with for their whole life. And I know that that's not true. It wasn't true for myself. It's not true for my clients. And so this is a 12 week program It is the fast track. I have clients that come to me who have been suffering for eight years and we work together for three months and they're transformed, right? It's the system of transformation. 12 weeks later, they're a whole new person inside and out. 
right? With their mindset towards food, with their actual health and with their performance as well. Great. So as we talk about your work and your nutrition advice, even though you work exclusively with women, I got to believe that a lot of the principles also would apply to men. Yes, it absolutely does. I love working with men and they're, you know, they need nutrition help as well. It's actually funny. And I'm sure we'll get into this later, but prior to starting rise up nutrition, I worked exclusively with men and, um, <laughs> one of my jobs was working exclusively with men. So I did a complete 180. It's just something I really wanted to focus on. A lot of the principles are the same and, you know, men struggle with this as well, but I think there are a lot of differences as well. There's a difference in our mindset and our relationship to food and body. I'm not saying men don't struggle with body image concerns. They do, but it might be expressed differently than how women express it. Similarly, nutrition, there's a lot of overlap, but there are a lot of differences, including notably with our hormones and how our hormones interact with nutrition. So how a man's got pretty consistent hormone levels throughout their month, throughout their life. And a woman does not, a woman has very different hormone levels that affect their physiology, affect their sleep, affect their recovery. And so there are differences, which is important to address when I'm working with clients. You mentioned you work a lot with the elite athletes and some professional athletes, but I believe you also work with recreational runners as well. Absolutely. And I fall in that category. So, you know, I'm a recreational runner, but I still call myself an athlete. I think it's all about how you view yourself, what the purpose of training is. Are you training or are you just going out for a leisure jog for fitness and exercise? All of it's important and, you know, it matters to everybody, but yeah, I, I work with recreational athletes, high school athletes. I even have some non-athletes who just really value fitness and that's important to address for sure. Yeah, I was never an athlete growing up. I started running later in life. And I joked that when I was in high school, I was on the math club team. So I was a mathlete, not an athlete. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I um, finally concluded that I was indeed an athlete when I ran my first Boston marathon. And I went to the athlete's village. That's the waiting area in Hopkinton before the race. Right. And Hey, if I was invited to the athlete's village, I must be an athlete. I think if once you're training for a marathon, you're definitely an athlete. You can't just wake up one morning and do that. So you work with Mary Kane, who's a professional world-class runner, and she was running with the Nike Oregon project. And she had developed an eating disorder as a result of being abused by Alberto Salazar. So Salazar was a coach with Nike and he's been now permanently banned from track and field events. And there was a New York Times feature on Mary. So how did you meet up with Mary Kane? Yeah, great question. You know, working with Mary has just been a pleasure. She's a wonderful person. And as tragic as her story is, she's got a good story now of recovery and of finding her health and of sharing her story and inspiring and empowering others. So how I linked up with her was really just through the connections. The reality is, Tim, as trendy of a topic as nutrition and sports nutrition is, it is not a big field at all. Getting into it even professionally was very, very challenging. There's not many jobs. For example, Nike Oregon Distance Project, they didn't have a dietitian on their team. There's a lot of professional athletes who do not have dietitians. There's a lot of college teams that do not have dietitian or nutrition resources. Most do not actually. Our major D1 schools now do. 
but most do not. So with that being said, it's a small community of sports dietitians who are at that level with the credentials that I have. I'm not trying to brag by any means, but again, it's, it's something that might surprise you. Nutrition is so popular, so trendy, but it is a small community. And so Mary Kane came out with her story and she actually linked up with a company to do some blood biomarkers, which is a company I'm affiliated with. I just think that they do good work. We support each other. My clients get discounts for their products and things like that. It's called Inside Tracker. So Mary was working with Inside Tracker and I know the people at Inside Tracker and her needs were unique. And like I said, I, I definitely have a niche of female <laughs> athletes with disordered right. eating and somebody like Mary shouldn't just see any dietitian. She needed someone specific. So, so one of the um, things she had was red S, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. Could you just describe red S? Also, do you see a lot of women coming to you with red S? Yeah, I would say 90% of my clients have red S. This is a term that was just coined back in 2014. So it's a relatively new term. It's not a new problem. We've had this problem. It's just a new way of kind of labeling it. Prior to 2014, many people would call this female athlete triad. It's just that our knowledge, understanding, and science of it has expanded to include the fact that it's not just for female athletes. Men can have red S as well. So what it really means is that relative to your energy expenditure in sport, you are not taking in enough energy. So that's where we talk about underfueling. But it can be very confusing in athletes and in sport because a lot of people will say things like, but I'm eating a lot. Or like, I'm not underfueling, or I'm not anorexic, you know, or I'm not even that skinny. They might say things like that, but that doesn't mean that you're still fueling for your sport needs because your body does this crazy, amazing thing. When you continue to train, your body will prioritize training. So if you're going out for a three hour run, right, you're running. So your body's like, I got to do everything in order to get through this run. And if you didn't eat enough during the day to really support that, then what that means is your body will start to slow down and shut down some internal processes. So things like hormones, slowing down, shutting down for men, this can mean a suppression of testosterone for women, a suppression of estrogen, progesterone, and a complete loss of their menstrual cycle. This affects things like their muscle recovery. This affects things like bone health. So we see a lot of people, Mary Kane being an example of this, who suddenly get multiple stress fractures over and over and over again, because their bone health has suffered. We see gastrointestinal disruptions. I think every runner can relate to having some sort of GI problems. I know I have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but definitely there's excessive bloating, excessive leaky gut when we're dealing with somebody with red S because the cells of your intestines are not being fueled and supported. Therefore you can't even digest your food. So people who kind of feel like, oh, I must have these sensitivities to all these foods. Nothing's digesting. Well, I'm always bloated can actually, and this is where there's always a conflict. People start removing food thinking, am I lactose intolerant? Am I gluten intolerant? Am I soy intolerant. They keep removing food when actually the answer was probably that they needed more food. So we see, like I said, physiological, hormonal, bone issues, GI issues, and eventually you will see performance issues. But that's where, like I said, a lot of people 
might be doing well with their performance for a decent period of time because the body's prioritizing your sport and all these other things shut down, but eventually it catches up to you. You get multiple stress fractures. You're not nourished. You get anemic, then your performance is going to suffer. And so the whole premise behind this is you you need to be taking in enough energy relative to your sport. It's not about just reaching a certain calorie limit. It's about matching your fueling needs for your sport demand. So would you say that under fueling then is the most common problem that you encounter amongst your clients? Yes. I think I would. So you have a podcast in which you address topics on diet and nutrition. So I recommend your podcast to all my Thanks. listeners. And um, I listened to a recent one with Kelly Swikart, who's an obstacle course racer, and she participates in Spartan events at an elite yeah. level. And one of the things you and Kelly talked about was health before performance. Could you just describe what that means? Absolutely. And I think it really lines up with what I was just explaining of in order to be the best athlete you can be, you do have to take care of your health first. If you might be saying, well, I don't want to eat more because I don't want to gain weight because I think that, you know, my ideal body weight to run is around X, Y, Z. But if that's putting you in a category of red S and your bones aren't supported and your GI isn't supported and you're not getting enough iron in, you're not supporting your health and your performance will suffer. It will. And it's always this guessing game of when, so, you know, I meet so many people that are like, but my performance is fine. And I'm like, okay, for now. And I don't wish that upon anyone. I'm not wishing for them to have bad performance. It's just something that eventually, so, you know, Callie is a great example of somebody who for years and years and years was striving for better performance. She's an elite obstacle course racer and was striving for better performance. And with that, she was very, very strict on her diet, not allowing things like never allowing ice cream, right? Just very strict on her diet, very cautious of her weight, trying to keep it at a very specific weight, but she was absolutely in red S she had no hormones and it was starting to really negatively, negatively affect her life. And so for a period of time, which was a struggle for her, but we had to put her performance on pause and say, we have to get your health back. And when we get your health back, your performance will come back too. And it did. It absolutely did. I think actually this, uh, yeah, in the next week, she's heading over to Germany for world championships in high rocks, obstacle course racing. That's impressive. Yeah. So that's kind of what we mean as a sports dietitian performance is the most important thing, but sometimes your health has to come first before performance. Makes sense. So you mentioned weight a couple of minutes ago, and uh, I think you advise your clients not to obsess over their weight, but I think that's a kind of a common theme. Even I care about my weight, particularly right now I'm training for a marathon. And so I feel that my ideal marathon weight, if you will, is like around 155 pounds. So normally I'm a little heavier than that, but as I running more and I losing a little weight, but then on some of these like hot, humid days, I sweat, I get on the scale after, and one day I get on the scale and I was under 150, it was shocking. Mm. And I subsequently eat more and drink more to catch up. Yes. But any advice about weight? Should we not get on the scale at all? <laughs> It really is an, an individual and a personal preference. What you just explained actually is a really good way to use the scale of monitoring yourself, especially after a run, you know, most of that weight that you lost after a run was a sign of dehydration. Yeah. And so for you, it was kind of like, Ooh, that's a little scary. Let me make sure I refuel and recover properly. And that's, that's a good way to use the scale. 
And even when it comes to things like you mentioned of maybe running your best around a certain weight, like provided that is a healthy weight for you and you're not having any signs of red S then that's okay. But what we see too, is that should happen pretty naturally, right? If you're fueling your body properly and you're following a proper training program, then it is normal for you to be five or so pounds heavier in the off season. And then as you feel properly and train properly, maybe you come down a couple pounds for peak performance and race day, and that should happen naturally. But when people get too obsessed with that number and think, well, now that I'm marathon training, now I've got a diet, that's where they start under fueling. And then what do you do? Then you don't recover properly. Then you Mm -hmm. don't have the energy to get through a 15 mile training run. And then you're actually not maximizing your performance because you're too hung up on your weight and not actually doing the actions and behaviors that support proper running. So that's why I say not to focus on the weight so much is because if you're focusing on the behaviors of fueling well and, and doing a smart training program, your weight will be an outcome of that. There's a lot of needs for nutrition across the spectrum. And even though I maybe work with people who struggle with underfueling, you might be surprised to hear that that doesn't mean that they're always underweight. Not eating the right things, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I think a lot of people assume, well, I can't be under eating because I'm this weight or something, but that's really not true. Our weight is so individualized, so u- unique to our diversity of bodies, even in the running community. And if we just focus on our actions, behaviors, your your weight will settle where it needs to be. And it'll be an outcome, but not necessarily something we should be striving for as a goal. You want your goal to be performance. Yeah, it makes sense. In another podcast, you mentioned diet culture. And I think you mentioned it earlier today. So could you please describe what that means? And why is diet culture undesirable? Sure. Simple definition is it's just the culture of nutrition and diet that we all live in. But right now, and for the past 40 years or so, the word diet typically means restricting, you know, I'm going on a diet or I'm in the pursuit of weight loss. That's what the majority of people assume, right? People even assume with me that since I'm a dietitian, I must always be on a diet. I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) our culture, you know, it's probably started in the eighties with very low fat diets. And then in the nineties, we had Atkins low carb diets. And then in the two thousands, we started these ketogenic intermittent diets. And so it's just our culture that has normalized going on a diet and has normalized restrictive eating. And just because it's been normalized, doesn't mean that that's right. Or that that's healthy. In fact, Tim, If you look at health trends from the 1980s through today, as the diet industry has made more money, made more supplements, come out with new diets, the state of health in the U S has worsened. So the facts are, and this is actually really incredible and rather scary when you dig into the research, but we have so much evidence that says the more that we diet, the unhealthier we are, which is just mind blowing. And I think will be probably hard for a lot of your listeners to really (laughs) accept. So that's why I might speak negatively of diet culture is that our current diet culture, I think is really straying people away from the fundamentals of healthy eating and healthy living. 
And that doing these restrictive diets, you know, eating 1200 calories a day or doing a keto diet just really is probably not appropriate for the majority of the population. There's certain situations where it may be, but it's really hurting a lot of people physically. It's hurting a lot of people mentally. In fact, with what I do with disordered eating, um, a lot of this is caused by diet culture, the pressure Mm -hmm. that we feel, we feel, well, our girlfriend went on this diet, so I should do that too. You know, and next thing, you know, three months later, we've hurt our body physically and mentally we're so confused about what the heck we should be eating. So that's why I caution people to be aware of diet culture, to be aware of marketing schemes, because it can be so harmful. With that being said, diet culture is always shifting and changing. Prior to the 1980s, there wasn't that much, right? Early 1900s, we didn't even know that calories existed. So there was a very, (laughs) you know, diet culture looks very different, but I'm even seeing it now when I grew up and I kind of was exposed to things like weight watchers and calorie counting, but I work with a lot of high school athletes now, you know, that 15, 16 years old, and they're not so hung up on dieting per se, but their diet culture is very trendy. They're very hung up on why well, I have to be vegan or only salads are good. So they have these perceptions around what is healthy and what is not that can still really harm them if they're not looking at nutrition on a really individualized basis. So diet culture is always changing. Yeah, right. So you mentioned calories. Do you advocate people count the calories? For my clients, no, but that doesn't mean it's wrong for everybody. When I do recommend it, Tim, is as a learning tool, right? To educate yourself. If you have no concept of how many calories you are eating, it can be helpful to learn and mm-hmm. figure that out and work with a dietitian because if you're eating 3,500 calories a day and you only need 2,500, well, when you start being aware, that can help you and vice versa. If you're only eating 1,700, but you're trying to run a marathon and a dietitian tells you you need 2,600, like that will help you to be aware and learn nutrition. So I think that being calorie aware is probably really important and it can be a great way for people to learn nutrition. But I generally speaking, I'm not going to recommend living your life counting calories. You got way more important things to do than add two plus two equals four all day (laughs) long. And uh, so count calories as a way to learn. I'm an engineer. I could see myself creating a spreadsheet for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. People go into the weeds and, and this is one reason why I don't advocate it too much because it can create some disordered eating <laughs> spreadsheet on spreadsheet on spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one last thing on the podcast this morning, you released a new one and you had Brody Sharp, who's a physical therapist from Australia. Yeah. And that was a really interesting podcast. I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes. For sure. My podcast has a variety of different topics. You know, it's called female athlete nutrition. So we've got female athletes, we've got nutrition, and then we've just got related things. So a physical therapist who focused on running was a great guest to have, you know, and then we'll, we might have another episode that's talking about gymnastics, or we might have another episode that's talking about blood work or another episode that's talking about disordered eating. So it really varies, but yeah, that, that one today, I think your audience will, will enjoy. Yeah. I think they'll like that. It was about avoiding injuries, which of course is a runner. We all deal with what he said was that get a given year it's 50 to 80% of all runners will develop some sort of injury during that year. Isn't that shocking? (laughs) I can relate to that. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the things he mentioned was that what precipitates the injuries is a change in your routine in some way, increasing your mileage, probably the most common change. 
let's say you register for a marathon and now instead of running 25 miles a week, you're running 50 miles a week. And if you do that too rapidly, you're at a higher risk for an injury. There was a story recently in the New York Times about that. And this study showed that the biggest contributing factor to injuries was changing your routine, multiple changes. So that was all very interesting. For sure. So I'd like to now talk about your professional development. You're a professional sports dietitian. And and so when I first went to your um, website, I noticed you have a lot of letters after your name. MS, Master (laughs) of Science, an RD. I had to look some of this stuff up. Rich is a dietitian and a CSSD, which means you're a board certified specialist in sports dietetics. And so I did a little research on that. And I found that CSSD is the premier professional sports nutrition credential in the US. But before you started Rise Up Nutrition, you worked as a registered dietitian at the University of Georgia and at Florida State. So what kind of support did you provide to college athletes? So those are both two big name universities, obviously, ACC and SEC. So they actually, within their athletics department, put a lot of effort into the nutrition with hiring dietitians. And I'll say even beyond that, really fueling their athletes as well, providing food to their athletes. So my responsibilities at both of those universities did include one-on-one consulting with athletes, especially athletes with any more high-risk concerns. You know, you do get athletes with type one diabetes. Uh, You do get athletes with injuries and going into surgery and stuff that need to have nutrition care throughout that process. And so one-on-one consulting, as well as education is huge between the ages of 18 to 22, and they're eating in the dining halls and they're learning to cook on their own in their apartment and grocery shopping. So we did a lot of just nutrition education, helping them I did grocery store tours. I did cooking classes, how to navigate the dining halls. And of course, keeping it performance focused too, if this is what you need as an athlete, we did lots of team education. So working with a team throughout their season, preseason, during season, postseason, working with their coaches and operations uh, team on when they're traveling, working with the hotel, setting up meals and catering, making sure their pregame meal wasn't a burger and fries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Gosh, when I was at Florida State, I worked with a football team. And so preseason training camp, two weeks long, two a days. It was just very intensive. Another role with those jobs is being on the court and the field with these athletes and monitoring their play and monitoring things like hydration status. We did lots of testing as well. We would test hydration status test body composition. Most universities that are like Florida State and University of Georgia, they have things called training tables, which is essentially like an athlete-only dining hall. So we would create the menus so that the food they're eating is sports dietitian Mm -hmm. approved. So it was a lot. You do a lot as a collegiate sports dietitian, at least at a university like that. Yeah, it's very interesting. You mentioned burger and fries. I think a lot of runners feel that because they run and burn a lot of calories that they can eat and drink pretty much anything they want. I I know I think that way a lot. And so I belong to a running club, Empire One, and we we have monthly meetings and we have either pizza or we have burger and fries and people bring up pitches of beer. And (laughs) (laughs) I think it's part of the running culture. Runners feel that they can eat anything they want because they're just going to run it off. Yeah. In many ways, Tim, that is true. And I definitely want to encourage people that because I'm so concerned about red ass and underfueling, Yeah, you should. You can't just live off of salads and expect to perform Mm -hmm. well in a marathon. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you are going to need extra energy. And one thing that I focus on is kind of strategically planning that. You don't want to eat a burger and fries before going out for a run. That's going to feel <laughs> terrible and you're not going to perform your best. You might not want to do it right after either, because that's where you really got to get some good nutrients in your system to recover appropriately and make sure that you're setting yourself up for success for your next run. But maybe later that day for dinner, you, you, <laughs> you, you've got everything. room in there. <laughs> timing is important with your nutrition. Yes. In addition to colleges, and you also worked with U.S. Air Force Special Operations and put our military troops with tactical nutrition. Yeah. You talk about that role a bit. Yeah, for sure. So I think career-wise, I always wanted to be a sports dietitian, and then I was, and it was great. But if I'm to be completely transparent, I was exhausted as I just listed all my duties at the college level. It was very, very demanding. You know, at Florida State, I was one of two dietitians for every single sports team, every single athlete, and it was too much. So. I got a call one day. I was recruited by the Air Force Special Operations. They were looking for a dietitian. They were looking specifically for a sports dietitian. It's still actually kind of funny to me. I don't know how my name got thrown in the hat, but I got a call and I thought, what? I, I'm a, you know, I've worked with athletes. Like I don't know anything about the military, but I got to thinking about it. I actually am from a military family. You know, my dad, well, your dad's a Marine. Yeah, exactly. And so like, <laughs> it actually does vibe really well with me and how I was raised in that structure. And as much as I thought I was doing my dream job, I thought, let me explore this. Cause I am kind of burnt out. And I did, I got the job and probably until doing my own thing, that was my favorite job. It was just what a cool experience. I was still providing sports nutrition, but just in a different way. We're not talking about winning or losing a game. We're talking about staying alive in the fight. We're talking about not just having energy to get through a 90 minute soccer game, but having energy to get through a three-day mission hiking in the mountains of Afghanistan. So that's the type of stuff I was dealing with, with these soldiers. And again, kind of comparing sports nutrition, we had injuries, we had combat wounds, and it was nutrition to help them get back so that they could return to combat. Um, so it was a really interesting job, really rewarding. I probably would have stayed there for many, many more years, because it's the type of community where once you're in, you know, they either reject you or they accept you. And once you're accepted, you know, in many ways, I was a daughter, I was a sister to so many of these soldiers, and it was really rewarding to work with them. So I probably would have stayed there for a really long time, except if I'm being fully transparent, I did meet my now husband through <laughs> that job. So I got married and he got reassigned to a new location and I followed him and I had to leave that job. So that's when Rise of Nutrition was born. Oh, wow. So were you nervous about starting your own business? I wouldn't say I was nervous. I think I've always had the entrepreneurial bug in me. And even with my experience with Air Force Special Operations, I was the only dietitian. So I was running the show. I had commanders. They weren't telling me what to do. They were asking me, what are we supposed to do? So I created the whole nutrition program with special operations. So I was really comfortable with that, with being kind of the sole person or creating things, developing programs. And I think I always had the entrepreneurial bug. So I wasn't nervous to start my own business. It was scary though, of course, to say, is this going to work? And the first six months were a little bit of crickets and a little bit of my <laughs> bank account dwindling, but yeah. <laughs> um, so you were confident yeah. in your capabilities, but I think there's a business side of it. Yeah. Are there enough customers out there for the service that you're providing? Right. And I had a lot of 
people concerned that maybe you're being too specialized because I am specialized. Maybe you're being too specialized, but I did have faith and I stuck with it that I said, nope, there are thousands and thousands of female athletes that need this. And I know it and yeah, I'm reaching them now. So I certainly have the customer base. And then you have a team of people working with you. So your business has flourished. Yeah. So it's very, very exciting. That's great. So let's now shift to talking about some general diet and nutrition advice for recreational runners. And I know you're probably thinking, well, every person is, has individual needs, but are there yes. any, what I'll call big rules, general mm-hmm. axioms that would apply to virtually all runners? Great question. Because yes, nutrition is individualized, but yeah, I think there's a lot of things that if most runners can follow a few simple nutrition tips, they're going to be far better off than following some crazy diet they found on Instagram. (laughs) Right. So I'll probably start with actually considering your fueling schedule, making sure that you are always eating before and after a run. It doesn't necessarily have to be a meal. I know some runners are, you know, 5am runners, but get something in your system before run a small granola bar. I run a lot in the morning. I wake up and I wonder, gee, should I eat anything? And so generally I'll have a, like a mini kind bar and some water. And and then I go out and run five miles. Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, for sure. I think bottom line is get something in and something that your body digests and tolerates well. So if a little kind bar works great, most people focus more just on carbohydrates because that digests the easiest. So it could be a piece of toast or two a small granola bar, a banana before run, obviously our longer runs are more intense runs. You might want more food, but getting something in for sure. And then your post run recovery is a really, really important meal. And sometimes I even call it that I call it a recovery meal. You know, a a lot of people might just do a protein shake and that's good, better than nothing, but actually that's your time to really think about, I'm replenishing my body, recovering my body. So getting a blend of carbs and protein and consider that recovery time to be a meal. So your pre and post run are very important to just make sure you're doing that. And then the rest of your day with your fueling schedule, eating every few hours is a pretty good schedule to follow for runners. Again, everybody's different. So when I say every few hours, this could be every two hours for some of our very active people with active jobs and fast metabolisms, or it could be every four to five hours. But when we do see people that maybe they eat at 9am and then not again until dinner time, we start to see some issues there. So I would encourage you to try and eat every few hours, every two to four hours throughout your day, including pre and post run. So the paradigm of three squares a day, you don't recommend that. Yeah. Typically adding in a snack and a pre and post workout is really important. Yeah. So I think that's one of my biggest tips, Tim, is your fueling schedule and your pre and post run. And my next tip is, is really a simple one. So basic. I feel silly (laughs) teaching it to people, but, um, (laughs) but people don't do it. Um, is that when you are putting together a meal, maybe not necessarily a snack, although it, it does apply to snacks as well, but definitely for your main meals to make sure that you have a balance of different food groups on your plate, just identifying, do I have a source of carbohydrate, a source of protein and a source of color, meaning fruits and vegetables. And are those relatively in proportion to each other? I have something, I call it a peace sign plate. If you think about a peace sign where your, your plate, your lunch plate, your dinner plate is kind of divided (laughs) into a peace (laughs) sign. You've got a third of your plate being carbs. That could be potatoes, quinoa, spaghetti, 
You've got a third of your plate being protein that can be salmon, chicken, ground beef, even beans. It can be a a non-meat source or yogurt. And then you've got a third of your plate being color, meaning fruits and veggies. That could be salad. It could be watermelon. It can be baby carrots, so many options, but those proportions should be pretty equal to each other. So when I grew up and I have to thank my parents, we grew up with good nutrition overall. You know, I've certainly expanded on that becoming a dietitian, but overall, as I've seen how people eat across the country, I have to thank my parents for instilling some good nutrition habits in us. But you know, in, in, in Western mass, it's pretty common to have a plate full of pasta for dinner, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and we did that and Hey, you need carbs as a runner, but you should really try and embody that peace sign plate where maybe only a third of my plate should be the pasta because a third of my plate should be the chicken. And a third of my plate should be the salad and mm-hmm. really making sure that you have the carb protein and color in balance with each other there. Yeah. So you have a Rise Up Nutrition Facebook group page, and then you share advice on recipes. So you mentioned carbs, proteins, and colors. It seemed like a recurring theme was carbs, proteins, fats, and colors. Where do fats yes. fit into? Fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so your fats should be on your plate as well. They just don't need to take up like a whole third of your plate. That would be mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous to just have a bowl full of olive oil, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> Okay. But you should definitely be able to identify at least one, if not two or three sources of fat on your plate. So as an example, just go with maybe you have a third of your plate is potatoes and they're roasted in olive oil. And then maybe your protein source is salmon, which is good, healthy source of protein and fat. And then you have salad with some nuts sprinkled on top for some healthy fats too. So you should have fats on your plate. They just don't need to take up a huge, huge portion. Makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned carbs and of course the common axiom amongst runners is the day before a race, they get a carb load for the Boston marathon, right? They have the pasta dinners. Is that good advice? Carb loading is definitely helpful for marathon, potentially even half marathon, depending on your training status. If you're a new half marathoner, I would say carb loading will probably help you. If you're very, very trained, then maybe you don't need it. But it definitely can help, but it shouldn't just be the night before the day before our carb loading should start at least three days out. And it's something I definitely work with my clients on doing it appropriately. Cause if you've never done it before, you can do it wrong. And then suddenly you show up on race day feeling bloated as all heck. And that's not fun for anybody either. The intention behind carb loading is that as you increase your carbs, you, you might slightly decrease your fats and proteins so that you're not necessarily just eating double the food in a few days (laughs) leading up to the race, but you're increasing your carbs so that more carbohydrate stores in your muscles as muscle glycogen. And that way there, you're less likely to bong. We store energy in our muscles and also in our liver in the form of glycogen. We store around 400 calories worth of liver glycogen and around 1600 calories worth of muscle glycogen. So you can see how in a marathon you can burn through that very easily. And definitely even longer endurance runs, uh, people do burn through 2000 calories in a marathon or more. And so that's where, if you can carb load, you can kind of super saturate that and you can store more carbohydrates so that you delay the onset of bonking. And of course it is important to fuel with some carbs during your run as well, whether that be gels, chews, Gatorades, or natural food products too. So I had a list of questions related to running, and I think you've actually addressed most of them. Okay. But I'm going to go through it real quickly just to make sure I got it. So 
Yeah. Diet while training for a long race, I think certainly you want to take in enough calories, fuel enough so that you're have sufficient energy. So you, you don't want to shortchange yourself in terms of energy intake. And then the diet before the race, don't start your carb loading the night before, but start it maybe a week before. Yeah. At least three days before, if, if not a gradual increase throughout the week. Yeah. And then the morning of a big race, it's okay to have a decent breakfast. Yeah. Again, I think focusing on the carbs, the morning of the race is important. So that could be cereal, oatmeal, bagels, toast, waffles, fresh fruit in there. And yes, you can, and probably should have a little bit of proteins and fats, but again, those are foods that fat takes a long time to digest. So we can see if having greasy breakfast sausage, isn't going to settle well in your stomach. No, so no. You don't need a dietitian to tell you that. Right, right, um. right, right. Well, you mentioned oatmeal. So I, yeah. uh, Shalane Flanagan, she won the New York marathon a few years ago. So she has a, a race day oatmeal recipe. It's a good one. Yeah. Just oatmeal and making it taste flavorful. I think she put some cinnamon, <laughs> right. some honey in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a good one. If you want to try that one out. And, and then during the race, you know, you mentioned gels and Gatorade. Do you recommend that? No. <laughs> no, I, I do actually, oh, you do? Okay. I, I, yeah, probably made a face just then too, only because that is such a popular question because so many people hate Gatorade, <laughs> um, but as a sports dietitian, I love it because it does what it was designed and intended to do as far as hydrating you, fueling you with carbs and replenishing electrolytes lost through sport and exercise where Gatorade goes wrong is, you know, people just drinking Gatorade while at work or, mm. you know, stopping a, on a road trip, stopping at the gas station, picking up a Gatorade when it's like, well, that's not what it was intended to do. You know, it is designed for athletes. Some people do have some concerns with tolerating it during a race. If you struggle with a sloshy stomach, things like that. So there might be some other products that certain individuals prefer, but I'm a fan of it personally. I use it and a lot of my clients use it too. My own personal experience with marathons, I, I did all right the first couple and then I started to develop nausea at about mile 20 or so. And it really slowed me down at the end of the race. And so I had friends that recommended all kinds of remedies, different energy drinks and so on. And, and then a friend suggested that you might just be dehydrated. Yeah. And I found if I just stop at every water stop and just have a drink, that seemed to address my nausea problem. Yeah, it's true. Most stomach issues during a race is going to come from dehydration or electrolyte imbalance because once the cells of your intestines are dehydrated or the electrolytes aren't there, then any food that is in your intestinal system or any food you attempt to consume can't properly be absorbed and it goes right through you. It creates nausea, mm -hmm. creates the mm -hmm. runner's tummy. So I would advise for most people that if you're during a race, struggling with nausea could be dehydration or electrolyte imbalance. And one thing I do want to caution just with saying dehydration, where that's where some people will start chugging water. And if it's actually an electrolyte issue, that can be dangerous and vice versa. You can salt overload. It's going to be more rare, but mm -hmm. you can, it can be a little tricky. So maybe a balance then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Balance. Okay. So maybe every other water stop, take the Gatorade. <laughs> There you go. That's actually one of my simple tips is mile one, take the water, mile two, take the Gatorade, and then just continue that alternating throughout the race. And Tim, if it's helpful, I actually do have a, a marathon, half marathon, like fueling guide. I can share that with you. You can put it in the show notes. It's on oh, my website awesome. as well. Thank you. 
So I did get a question from a listener, how to prevent nausea on long runs. This person says that her salt and electrolyte intake is okay. And she eats a peanut butter sandwich about halfway through her long run. Any other tips yeah. for her to prevent nausea? Yes. As I was just saying, it still might be electric or it's the hydration, but it might not even be during the run. We also have to look at what's your hydration status on the days before a long run. You could be hydrating and fueling well for your run, but if you're week leading up to it, slightly dehydrated every single day, then you're starting that run dehydrated. So that's something to consider. Tom Brady had some rule. I think it was like he drinks his, his weight in ounces. <laughs> Every day in water. Yeah. So if you weigh, you know, 160 pounds, then drink 160 ounces of water during the day, which seems like a lot. Yeah, but. yeah that's actually a pretty high. So, <laughs> but it's very, very active too. Maybe I have it wrong. The general rule of thumb is half of your body weight. Half of your body. Okay, that makes but sense. But then you might need extra pending your training level. But that's mm -hmm. a good place to start is half of your body weight and then add more based on thirst and sweat levels. Okay, good. Would men and women take different approaches, diet and nutrition, preparing for a race, doing a race? I think my short answer is, is no, only because the things that we've just talked about, I think apply to both men and women. With that being said, earlier in our discussion, I did mention that there are nutritional differences. If there's hormonal differences, there's nutritional differences. And so those are things that do have to be addressed. But everything that we talked about today, that applies to men and women for sure. That's great advice and appreciate that. So let's talk yeah. about your athletic accomplishments. You're a, a high school athlete and I believe you're in your high school sports hall of fame. Was it yeah. Aguam High? Yeah, yeah. I went to Aguam. Yeah, they have a fun little sports hall of fame. So I was inducted into that, which is nice. Great. So what sports did you play? I did gymnastics, indoor track and outdoor track. At that time in my life, gymnastics was my main sport and my love and my passion. And then I really also did track, enjoyed track. Now I'm a distance runner, but at the time I wasn't because coming from gymnastics, I was just so great at those sprint and power sports. So I did the 400 hurdles. Well, in high school, it was a 300 hurdles. I did pole vault. I did 400 meters. And then in college, I ran track as well. You're at UMass Amherst? Yes. UMass Amherst. So I competed on their women's division one track and field team, which was just a really great experience. And similarly stuck with those events that I was excelling at the 400 hurdles, pole vaults, sprint relays. And then post-college is when I got into distance running, which I think was, oh, I always wanted to, because my Dad, well, dad was running, running marathons. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. And my sisters did cross country and I really loved cross country, but it was the same season as gymnastics in high school. So I didn't do it, but I always just loved that sport. And so yeah, post-college kind of got into it. So how many marathons have you run? So I've actually only run two. I hope to have many more in my future. Well, you're still very young. I didn't run my first marathon until I was 59. So you have plenty of time. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for that. Because I'm at a stage in my life where I'm like, oh man, I want to be running more, but it just hasn't happened. I'm like, you know what? You know, my dad ran his first marathon at 40. So yeah, <laughs> I got plenty of time. I ran my first one at age 24 and it went really, really great, but I did have a pretty significant injury. It wasn't really running related. I had an extra bone in my foot, but running exacerbated it. And it took me years to rehab surgery. So it, I probably between ages 24 to 28, I, I think I was 28 before I competitively raced another half marathon. 
So that ankle screwed me up. And then at age 30, I ran another marathon, which was great. And then we had COVID hit. And so now we're just kind of coming back from that, right? So um, how many miles a week are you logging these days? So currently I'm logging probably about four or five miles a week because <laughs> I am 26 weeks pregnant. Oh, and... oh, oh, oh. congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. My running is definitely on hold at the moment, which I'm excited for, of course. So this is my first pregnancy. Prior to that, I'm a pretty consistent 25 to 30 mile a week runner. I've never been a super high mileage runner, even though I think I would like to, it takes a lot of time and I've been pretty busy building a business. So let's talk about your business. How can people sign up if they're interested in Rise Up Nutrition? You can head to my website, which is riseupnutritionrun.com. You can also connect with me through Instagram. I'm pretty active on there which is at female.athlete.nutrition. And through either avenue, you'll find links of how you can book a phone call with me, which I think is the best way to do it. Instead of just automatically signing up for something is book a phone call. We'll have a quick conversation and see if I can help you or how I can help you. I certainly want to make sure that my services are right for you and that you're getting exactly what you need. So, so yeah, you can head to my website or connect with me on Instagram or Facebook you mentioned as well and hop on the phone with me and we can go from there. Great. I was going to ask you to provide a takeaway message, but I think you kind of already did that with the fueling schedule. So I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to ask you one of your questions. Okay. So if you could eat one thing every day, what would that be? Yes. That's, that's one of my questions on my podcast. One food that you could eat every single day, never, ever, ever get sick of. I kind of have two, if I can allow myself to answer my own question with two. So the logical answer is coffee. Mm -hmm. I do it already. I drink mm -hmm. coffee every day and I love mm -hmm. it. And I wake up and I look forward to it. So <laughs> I know I can drink coffee every day and never get sick of it. My second favorite food is ice cream. And to be specific, it's actually coffee flavored ice cream. Coffee ice cream <laughs> is my favorite. So although I haven't eaten ice cream every single day, I think that I could eat it every single day and never, ever get sick of it. Yeah. I like both of those things too. If you would ask me that question, <laughs> I thought about it and I would say probably pasta, like spaghetti and meatballs. Mm -hmm. It's basic, but it's something I enjoy. I could eat Italian food every day. Yeah, I agree. Italian food. I could if I'm thinking more real food too, I think I'm a big rice fan. I could probably eat rice every single day. Yeah. That and anything with chocolate or nuts in it. So Lindsay, thanks so much for sharing your expertise on the podcast. It's been great chatting with you and good luck with your business and uh, with the baby. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. This was fun to chat and I hope it was helpful to your listeners. Yeah, I'm sure everyone will enjoy it. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. Thank you. In previous podcasts, I've mentioned the New York Times running newsletter, which is a free weekly email. In the latest edition, there was a link to a guide by Jen Miller called How to Feed a Runner, which has many of the same fueling tips that Lindsay and I just talked about. The newsletter also has tips on injury prevention. This past weekend, September 11th and 12th, had beautiful weather for running, and 745 runners took advantage of the great weather to run in five different local Western Mass races. 320 runners finished the halfway to St. Patrick's Day 5K race at Ashley Reservoir, 
175 runners finished the Westfield Half, 10K, and 5K events. 153 runners completed the Black Birch 10-miler. 74 runners completed the 5K race at Hampshire Regional High School. And 23 runners ran in the SOAR event in Belchertown. And I got in a 14-mile training run through the streets of Longmeadow and East Longmeadow. On this upcoming weekend, September 18th and 19th, there are seven Western Mass races. The races on Saturday, September 18th, are the Don Maynard Memorial 5-Miler in Greenfield, the Founders Day 5K race in Lee, Colby's Path to the Cure in Westfield, the Chicopee Athletic Hall of Fame 5K run and walk, Megan's Light 5K fun run and one-mile walk in Feeding Hills, and the Williamstown Community Chest 5K run and one-mile kids run and walk. On Sunday, September 19th, the Silver Bell Seasonal 5K Trail Race will take place in Munson. On the following weekend, September 25th and 26th, there are six more races. The three races on Saturday, September 25th, are the 8th Annual Hospice Meadows 5K Run and 2-Mile Walk in Northampton, the Falcon 5K Trail Race in Wilbraham, and the Ark of Justice 5K in Historic Deerfield. Three more races on Sunday, September 26th, are the Summit Run 5K in Hadley, the Gould Farm 5K in Monterey, and the Spartan Sprint 5K in East Longmeadow. So get out there, enjoy the great New England fall weather, and support a local cause by registering for a local race. I'm targeting the week of September 27th for my next podcast release, which will feature a conversation with Erica Emerson about her experience in the Leadville 100-mile race through the Rocky Mountains, as well as a scare that she survived during one of her marathons. You won't want to miss that podcast. Thank you for listening to the Let's Run Western Mass Running podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. And as always, happy running.